On June 18, 1815, the fate of Europe rested in the hands of the armies of England led by Sir Arthur Wellesley, better known as Lord Wellington. Napoleon had escaped what amounts to international prison and had begun to wreak havoc once again on Europe, expanding its territory. So, June 18, 1815, the forces of England met the forces of France in Belgium at a place called Waterloo. In those days, it was, of course, before telephones and before telegraphs and before texting. And so the way messages of importance were communicated was through a system of signals that usually soldiers would pass from region to region. In those days, England received messages at one of its southernmost points, the Cathedral Castle at Winchester, which was the ancient capital of the Saxon kingdom of Wessex. But it was there that a ship in the English Channel would communicate through a series of signals what was taking place. And once received, that message would be passed on to other points along the way, and the message would spread very quickly through England. On that particular day, everyone, of course, waited with anxiety because the thought of being under the dominion and power of a tyrant like Napoleon did not sit well with the British. On that day, the battle had happened. The ship in the harbor began to signal the news, and the first word came and reached the cathedral, Wellington. A moment later, the second word was signaled, being passed on all through England, defeated. As the story goes, it was that moment that, as typical, rain began to fall, fog began to lift, and there was, of course, an inability to see the last message. And so, the two words, Wellington defeated, went through all of England, and there was great sorrow in the land. Three hours later, the sun came out and began to burn the fog off. The rain lifted and the sun began to shine. And the final words were at last communicated. The enemy. Wellington defeated the enemy. And there was great rejoicing in all of the land. That's a parable, a historical moment that communicates something much grander that we've come to behold today. And here it is. Post-tenebras lux. After darkness, light. And the crucifixion and resurrection is God's statement to the earth that that will always, always, always be the pattern. Darkness, yes, but light. Post-tenebras lux. I wonder about you and me hearing this. Are you walking toward the light? Our passage is very curious. Two things open it up that only God Himself could pull off. One, it was strangely dark. It says that the sun had failed. God had purposefully made the scene nighttime. And for three hours, there was darkness over the land. 
certainly a natural phenomenon. When God, when God performs miracles like that, it's a signal, something cataclysmic, something earth-shattering, a game-changer is occurring. Then there's the tearing of the temple curtain. So thick, so dense, so heavy, that no man could tear that from top to bottom. But of course, it's symbolic as well. The temple, was, the temple curtain was the place that separated the profane from the holy. Behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, which God said, this is my presence amongst you. And only once a year could only the high priest go in there after a rigorous and exhausting ritual to cleanse and purify himself. The curtain was in a sense a way God protected man. Man was actually protected from God, his wrath, his judgment, his holiness, his beauty, his brilliance, his shining light. There it is torn. So a dark sky and a torn curtain in the temple. Here's what that scene is communicating. Heaven has spoken. Heaven has made a declaration. It is said that the judgment day, that day, has moved from the future to the present. Isaiah says this, speaking of the dark, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, speaking of the judgment. It's cruel with wrath and fierce anger to destroy all sinners. For the stars of the heaven will not give light and the sun will be dark. That's what's unfolding here. Judgment Day is moved from the future to the present, but it is singularly focused and singularly concentrated on just one, whom of all people, the Roman centurion, speaking of unclean, states that watching Jesus in the way He died in the face of His enemies who were mocking Him and taunting Him and committing violence against Him, the forgiveness He offered the confidence he showed in God led him to declare this verdict. Surely this man is innocent. The innocent one is getting all of the wrath and all of the judgment and all of the condemnation. Let's just think about that for a moment. Jesus, who is the light of the world, who was at creation when the words, let there be light, was spoken. That Jesus is now shrouded in darkness. And the reason for that is because He does that so that we, whom the Apostle Paul literally calls darkness, may be clothed in light. The light takes on the darkness so that we in darkness will come into the light and be clothed with the light. The crucifixion also happens at a significant holiday. It's Passover. And at Passover is when, of course, God rescued His people from the grips of Egypt. And the Passover happened after three days of darkness over the land. Judgment. And on the Passover, someone was going to pay for sin. It was either the firstborn or the Passover lamb. 
Here in Jesus Christ, not three days, but three hours of darkness, we behold the killing of Him who was both the firstborn and the Passover Lamb. All in Jesus Christ. But just as the land was dark, so were the followers of Jesus. It's a very interesting scene in those verses 50 through 56. His friends remain in the darkness. Verse 48, it says, Those who did come out to see the spectacle went home beating their breasts. Disappointment. Frustration. Sorrow. It tells us that His closest followers stood at a distance. Are they afraid? Are they ashamed? Yes. Both. And then it takes great pains to emphasize that Jesus is actually dead. They take down the limp body from the cross. What a a physical exercise and labor that must have been. And then they take pains to wrap the body in linen. And then they move the body to a tomb. And then they leave the body there to await, well, preparation for spices that would make things more pleasant for the body. Here's the point of all that. Every person around the cross, every person who had invested their thoughts and their hopes in Jesus, believed it was over. They all assume in this story that it ends right here. And they had seen that. We don't see this in the Bible, but in the history of Jerusalem in particular, they were occupied by Rome. And in the century or so before Jesus, there were a dozen Messiah movements. Even one who came into Jerusalem with a waving of palm branches. In each of those instances, Rome killed the leader and their movement died. Here we see Rome killing the leader, but you're sitting in this room. It did not die. The shepherd was struck, but the sheep did not scatter. Now, I want you to hold on to that for just a moment. I want you to imagine what it was like for those who had invested in Jesus. And if you, if you can squint your imaginations, I bet you sometimes feel this way too. When there's pain, when there's something unexpected, when there's tragedy, hear what they must have been thinking in their minds that night after they saw His limp, crushed, skinny body brought down from the cross in shame and degradation. Remember His birth? That would have been a haunting thought. Remember the story of His birth? They must have thought going through their mind. They're not counting sheep, but they're remembering that here was someone that the angel said, born this day in the city of David, a Savior. Yeah, right. Remember John, the baptizer, the prominent preacher of the day, calling people to repentance. The people went out to him and John, the baptizer, said, look, I baptize you with water as a symbol of purity, but he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit and his sandals I'm not even worthy to tie. 
What about the words of Jesus Himself? Recall His very first sermon. Here this limp body put in a tomb and this comes to mind where Jesus stood before His peers and He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's called me to proclaim liberty to captives, to give sight to the blind, and to liberate the oppressed. Then he was so bold as to say, in, in hearing this, this Scripture is fulfilled. That would lead us to all his claims. Those claims of deity that he made. That he was the Son of God and the Son of Man. He said such poetic words like, I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the vine and you are the branches. I'm the sheep, shepherd, and you're my sheep. And then, as we read earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. Can you feel what they must have sensed at that moment? What a waste! What a waste! Three years with the hope of more. Talk of a kingdom and its glory and building and heaven and hell. All of these thoughts crushed, crashed in the darkness of that moment. That's what they would have felt. Anger. Disappointment. Dare I say betrayal. Post tenebras lux, after darkness light always. Verse one, chapter twenty-four. Well, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. It says, and verse four tells us something that ought to be a comfort to you, we moderns, with all of our scientific brilliance. They were perplexed. The ladies, who, whose testimony, by the way, was not allowed in court, they did know this. When someone dies, they die. They don't get up. They were perplexed and confused that they see this empty tomb and a piece of cloth. And verse 11, it gives us even a little more twist. The disciples, whom we would think are so ready to believe in Jesus, so ready to just make up stories. They told the ladies to get out. That They're telling an idle tale. Literally, calm down. You're a little too hysterical. There's a thought amongst us that ancients somehow had the capacity to believe weird, miraculous things like this. But we don't. We're beyond that capacity. But I want you to see our common DNA, they didn't believe it either. Why would they? And then, verses 4 and 5, the angels preach the Gospel. Just like they did at the birth, now at the new birth. And they're confused because they've forgotten their Sunday school lessons. Why are you here? He told you. That it was absolutely, fundamentally, precisely necessary that He go to Jerusalem, 
that He be crucified, that He be buried, that He be raised again. He's already told you this. And hearing those words, there was stirring amazement amongst the women. What the angels speak is a word so familiar to us, we almost miss it. They preach the gospel. The gospel was a technical term used in the Roman world for a big, big news event. Something happened in the capital city and it's going to affect all of the provinces. An equivalent might be for us. Congress, even though you're in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and they're in Washington, D.C., has decided to pass a tax. We can say, I don't believe they did that. I stand in opposition to them doing that. It doesn't matter. It happened. And then we stand opposed to it or come in line with it. That's what gospel means. Not merely a message of salvation, but a message of salvation for all of the creation. God has spoken. God has moved. God has made the first move into time and space. And that's what the event means. And you and I stare at it. We behold it. And we have three responses to that. The resurrection, first of all, we can respond with just unbelief. Verse 11, don't you find it comforting that the disciples also struggled with unbelief? Mark Twain said famously, faith is believing what you know ain't true. With sorrow in my heart, I would recommend that he has a very different opinion. No Christian believes that faith is wishing Christianity of all the faith statements in the world, of all the belief system, is absolutely foundationally built on historical events. Not the teaching of its leader, not the example that he sets, not the wisdom that he offers, not the ethic that he pronounces. Unlike all, without Jesus and the resurrection, Paul says this, we are to be pitied. But if unbelief be your posture... And I hope you hear that it's quite common and is understandable like the disciples. Someone has told you something amazing, big, cataclysmic, earth-shattering. The most significant event in human history has happened. And if you don't investigate that, you are committing intellectual suicide. It's a challenge to actually stir our brains, to get logical, to think and I welcome the opportunity to sit with you and walk with you through that. The Bible was written for people who did not believe in Jesus. The second response to news of the resurrection is to think of the resurrection like grandma's china set that she left to you in her will. And every year you pull it out once a year, set it on the table, and as the years go by and you pass it on to your children, the significance and connection of that china loses its theme. And you wonder, why are we even doing this? We can treat the resurrection like that. Rather than seeing it as the all-encompassing Copernican revolution that it is, that completely turns the world on its head, we can see it as a nice relic that Grandma left us. A tradition passed down that once a year I'll pull it off, 
blow the dust off and set it on the table. Look. And then put it away. The option that is best is the third, and that is to think of the resurrection as a pair of glasses. Each with a lens. Each with a way to see the world. It's something that you put on and you wear. The resurrection becomes more than just a fanciful story. It is the very thing into which all believers must conform themselves. What do they conform themselves to? One note. Look at Peter, verse 12. I love this guy. He teaches us how we should approach this. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. If I may put it in language we understand, Peter doubted his doubts. He too said, I don't believe it. This is an idle tale. But there was something stirring that said, I'll go check it out. He rose and he ran. He doubted his doubts. He made the conclusion, perhaps I'm not the center of all knowing and being in the universe. Maybe there is a God and maybe He's able to do this. And then it says he stooped and looked in. He takes energies to investigate. And then he sees something. He saw the linen cloth by himself. That told him that if this is true, it's not something I feel, it's something that's there. I can look at it, I can see it. And seeing that changes him. And so he goes home, and a great word, he marvels at what had happened. Past tense. The resurrection tells us two things something has ended and something has begun. What has ended? Well, what is ended is the penalty for sin. Jesus took that. What is broken is the power of sin, which captivates us and yet slams us as slaves. The power of sin broken. And then the presence of sin has met its match because the presence of the Holy Spirit is poured out after Jesus ascends to the Father. Jesus It says, if you're a believer, the resurrection is this guarantee. Doubt not, He has saved you thoroughly, completely, finished, done. You may do nothing more. You can accomplish nothing more to win God's smile. As one friend says, you are as right and just before God now as you ever will be in Christ. He's declared something about the the end of sin and its penalty, which is death. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. The verdict has been issued. And the resurrection is, if I may use the analogy, a receipt. You ever go to Walmart? Of course you do. It is our temple. When you go to Walmart, there are these really annoying people who smile, but they're annoying because they're waiting to check your receipt on the way out. You have that experience? I had a friend tell me, that's illegal. But anyway, I do it. But I mess with them every time I go. I've got my receipt and usually things that aren't in a bag, so they're suspicious. And I actually begin to kind of run. (laughs) So that they think I'm stealing. And they, they catch up to you. Sir, sir, need to see... I take privilege in proving to them I didn't steal this. Here's the receipt. Nah. 
The resurrection of Jesus is that receipt that the perfect righteousness, the perfect security, the perfect liberty, the perfect love, His perfect commitment to you is paid in full. Something has ended. Sin and death. But something has begun. Post tenebras lux, after darkness light. Here's what the resurrection means. Jesus is the first fruits of God's great plan for His world. He is making all things new. I know, I watch the news too. When I squint, I'm wondering, how's that possible? It's just because I live here and not other places where they would tell you things have never been better. God is up to making all things new in us and in His creation. His program because of the resurrection is to change us from the inside out and use us to influence that world where there's darkness, so light comes. That's the point. That is a freedom and a joy that I want you to hear because those who dismiss the resurrection, who either don't believe it or hold it like a plate of china that grandma gave them, they run in two worlds, usually at the same time. One world is that they're so afraid of death that all they can do is get more, go more, buy more, drink more, have sex more, uh, have friends love them more, 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 more. In that constant search to fill up what only this Lord can fill up. They're so afraid of death that they have to distract themselves from its reality and impending doom. Then there are those who, because they don't believe the resurrection, are afraid to live. They don't see what God is up to. They don't believe in what is believing noble and right and true. They, they are filled with dread and sorrow, and anger. Their anxieties go beyond just normal. They fail to see that God has them, and they withdraw. And they say to the world, go to hell. But in Christ, there is a different reality. Paul uses this language, the night, it's almost over. And the dawn is rising. The resurrection says something happened, and yet in full, it hasn't completed itself. Just like the sun rising to take away the night. He even says this of believers, you once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live where there's freedom. Live where there's joy. Live where there's holiness and goodness. And what's the guarantee of that? It's that Christ is with you. You ever see the movie Hoosiers? Okay, if you haven't, don't ever come back here. I'm just kidding. Uh, Hoosiers is just pure, like it just bleeds of beauty. Americana. It's about the small, what we would call a 1A team that ends up winning the whole state finals in basketball. And they have a new coach played by Gene Hackman uh, named Norman Dale. And the town hates him because, you know, they've all grown up together and this outsider comes in and he doesn't play the old good old boy system. So he has rules and discipline. You either abide by my rules or you get off the team. And, of course, the parents and the school board and all the powers that be that don't actually play on the team, they're, they're, they are um, 
they are roused and angry. So they have a meeting of the town with the school board to, to say, coach has got to go. And they take a vote and everybody agrees, coach has to be fired. But there's this kid named Jimmy Chitwood who didn't play that year, but everybody in town knew he was this virtuoso. Home, home slice could make it any time he shot the ball. He had all the moves, and they longed to have him on the team. And just after they fired Coach Dell, Jimmy comes in, and he says, you know, I got something to say. I think I'm going to start playing. And the place erupts, and they assume because they've, well, let Coach Dell that Jimmy's changed his mind. And then Jimmy says these words to those detractors. I play. Coach stays. Coach goes. I go. And they reinstated Normandale. The, the point of that is Christ is in you. Because of the resurrection, Christ is with you. Because of the resurrection, Christ is over you, under you, and lives through you. Paul says it best, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. But not I. It's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live right here in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. At the end of C.S. Lewis's great collection, The Chronicles of Narnia, the very last words after the last battle, he says this word which is meant to reflect the resurrection. All their life, in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. You're in my life because of the resurrection. It's just the title page to a story that will go on forever. As Jesus says, do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord God, would You make the resurrection more than an annual uh, taking off of some strange, embarrassing plate that we pull out for guests? And would You make it, Lord, our very life? Would You, would you as the, the psalmist says, may we taste and see that You're good. Lord, let these lenses rest on our eyes. We see the world in a different way. We approach the world in a different way because Jesus has risen from the dead. Lord, those here who feel themselves damaged goods, would You remind them that because You rose, You've guaranteed they have a new identity. Lord, may those who feel trapped by the past by sin, by regret that they can't quite get over, would You remind them that the resurrection guarantees they have a new record, a new hope? Lord, may we who've suffered loss and pain and hurt see in Your resurrected body wounds that tell us pain is real, but it's not the final word after darkness light. Lord, help us to see that the resurrection is this threshold that we cross over and we leave behind us shame and sin and the degrading old life with all of its attendant miseries. 
And we are welcomed into a new world and a new life. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.